Hey everyone, welcome back to Policy Punchline. Here at the show, we invite scholars, policymakers, and business executives to share their unique insights on policy-related issues in our world today. I'm Princeton sophomore Tiger Gao. Our listeners must have noticed that we're publishing a decent number of episodes on health policies and issues uh, recently, and that's because we had the opportunity to connect with Princeton's uh, Griswold Center for Economic Policy Studies, and they invited us to be part of uh, this year's health policy conference in tribute to Professor Uwe Reinhardt. Uh, health is such an important part of our societal discourse, not only because healthcare is always part of any administration's legislative agendas, but also because healthcare and health policies are literally the foundation of our society and people's well-being. Uh, so we here at Policy Punchline are just extremely grateful that we can pivot away from finance and economics once in a while and focus on many of the other important debates in our world today, like health care. Uh, and, and we're so grateful that Princeton's uh, Griswold Center and a range of really famous professors are willing to have those conversations with us today. Uh, and, and that brings us to our topic this episode, the U.S. healthcare system. Uh, we want to talk about the Affordable Care Act, how we should really uh, think about healthcare and health policies on a more fundamental level. Uh, and I can't really think of another person more better suited uh, to talk about this issue. Uh, our guest today is Professor Sherry Gleed. She is currently uh, the Dean of New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, uh, and she was the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at the Department of Health and Human Services under President Obama. Thank you so much for joining us today uh, at Policy, Policy Punchline, Professor Gleed. It is such an honor uh, to interview you. I'm delighted to do it. Um, so you've worked under the Bush, Clinton, and Obama administrations and had been in close contact with health care reform uh, under Clinton and Obama, which one of which failed and one of which passed. Uh, would you mind first giving us a quick overview of your involvement back then, your career? Oh, um, my. All right. Well, so this is a long story now. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I'm actually from Canada. I grew up in Toronto. And... Uh, I did my PhD and became a, I wanted to be a labor economist. I was really interested in the labor market. And I wrote my dissertation at that time about the impact of the um, HIV epidemic, which was raging on the U.S. labor market. And when I went on the job market, everyone said, well, you could be a labor economist, but we'd really like a health economist. Will you come and work for us as a health economist? So I took a job as a health economist, and I taught labor economics as one of my classes. In 1991, a college professor named Harris Wofford won an election in Pennsylvania and beat out a guy named Dick Thornburg who had been the Attorney General of the United States under Ronald Reagan. So 1991 is the late part of the Bush administration, the first Bush administration, after eight years of Ronald Reagan. No one was talking about health care policy. No one was interested in health care policy. The whole area had been pretty much ignored for, at that point, 13 years. I mean, lots of things had happened. That's, a, that's an exaggeration. But, but Coverage was not on the agenda. And Wofford won this election quite shockingly. It was like a rumpled college professor, and he won the election because he advocated for single-payer health insurance back in 1991. And the Bush administration got really nervous, and they decided they better have a health care plan. So they had a few people who could work on a health care plan there, and they had a spot on this thing called the Council of Economic Advisors. Lots of Princeton faculty had been on the council. They had a spot for a visiting senior economist, but there are only 10 senior economist slots, and they had one for a labor economist. They decided they wanted to find a labor economist who could do health care. And my, my 
somebody called me and said, would you be willing to do it? And I said, well, I'm willing to talk to them. So they called me and I said, well, I'm not a Republican. And they said, we don't care. I said, I'm not an American. And they were like, we don't care. Really? So off I went to Washington and I got to work on the Bush plan. We started to develop a plan, um, wrote white papers and other things. And I got to meet a lot of the people around Washington who did healthcare policy, the people in the government. Back in those days, there was already an internet, but people didn't communicate so much with the internet. You needed to know people's phone numbers. You needed to know who they were. The Clinton folks came in, and I was there, and they were a little bit suspicious of me because I was already there, although I said I'm Canadian. I'm not a Republican. I'm not a Democrat. I'm just a Canadian. And eventually, they came around to talking to me. They had to because I was the only person who knew who to call in all the rest of the government to find out essential things as they built their plan. So very early in the administration, they came in January 20th, by two weeks into the administration, I was in meetings with the president. It was insane. Um, I was this little nobody from Canada, but I was the only person who knew, like, if you want to know how much national health expenditures cost, call this person, um, or if you want to know this thing, or whatever. Um, so we started working on the, on the Clinton plan, and, and that was a whirlwind. Um, it was a really crazy time. Uh, the plan was being organized by a very close friend of the president's, a man named Ira Magaziner. He had been a management consultant. And he had gotten the job because he had more or less promised the president that he could do something that no one else thought they could do, which was he could actually lower health care spending and expand coverage and reduce the budget and everything all at the same time. And all the other people that the president had spoken to said, you can't do that. So he got the job, and then he started to put this process in place. And it was a very, um, it was a very hierarchical process. There were all these working groups and task forces and and toll gate meetings and and just a lot of process. But there was leaking all over the place. It was like the Trump White House. You know how it leaks all the time. The Clinton White House was the same way. You would have a conversation. You'd get back to your office and there'd be somebody from the Washington Post calling you to verify something someone had said at that meeting. They didn't really call me because I was too, I was too <laughs> off the radar. But I was in meeting, I, was in, I would walk into people's rooms and hear the phone ring and it would be somebody from the Washington Post calling to say, I just heard that at the meeting you decided that you would do this. Is that true? Um, which is what reporters do. Right. Um, so it was, on the one hand, like this very secretive closed process and on the other hand, leaking like a sieve. Um, and they decided in writing this thing be, that they were going to come up with a complete and comprehensive health plan. So if you've ever seen the Clinton health plan, it's a book. It's actually a book. And it explains every element of it, exactly what's going to happen. All the way down, there's a provision in the Clinton health plan that says if it's going to be, it was going to be organized around these health care exchanges, I don't, collaboratives, whatever it was, if one of these wanted to have a healthcare patient advocate, they could levy, they could have a vote to levy a $1 fee on each policyholder to pay for the healthcare advocate. So I'm saying it was like unbelievably detailed and minute. And they sent it to Congress and Congress was like, no thank you. And they just didn't let it pass. Well, they didn't even really take it very seriously. Exactly. Um, part of it, a big part of it was purely political. Newt Gingrich said, you know, this is the way we're going to take down the administration. And that was an idea that has survived a long time. But part of it was also just, that's not the way Congress works. Congress does not like to be told by the president, this is the plan. Um, so, I thought Clinton and Gingrich had a good relationship back then. They would talk pretty frequently. Like the talking is not, I mean, the, better. The, the, 
well, Gingrich was really the beginning of this incredible polarization. Uh, and he had this view that, um, so, you know, healthcare policy is tied up with a lot of things, but there was a view that healthcare policy would be like Social Security. And the, the impression of the Republicans was that Social Security had turned an entire generation to the Democrats because it had given them new benefits. They did not want that to happen. So that was what happened in the Clinton plan. And it just, it, it died of not really being able to compromise within itself in a, in a way, right? It had this, they had this plan. They couldn't really, they couldn't get it through. Gingrich was really opposing it. And there was no way to take it apart and put it back together again. Did, did social attitude play any role in that? You were just mentioning about how people's opinion towards I guess social benefits and healthcare was, were shifting. So, so at that moment, I don't know. I mean, Clinton rode, Clinton was elected. There was a third candidate. It's a long, complicated story. But, but there was a lot of support for national health insurance. I mean, after all, Bush had been working on it. All the, Harris Wofford had been elected in Pennsylvania. I mean, there was this big interest in universal health coverage at that moment. Um, but it was very easy to demagogue it. Um, the insurance companies t t ran these famous Harry and Louise ads about how your great coverage would be taken away by the Clinton reform. There were various um, very influential editorials and pieces written about how it was going to take everything away from you, um, that you wouldn't have any choice, that, that good quality care would disappear, that there would be rationing, the things that we hear all the time. So it's not like there was not rampant political opposition. Um, the beginnings of the Tea Party, all of that, you know, not, way back. Um, uh, so th it isn't as though there was no opposition, but it was also a particular, it was a strategy to go in with a whole plan. So the reason I lay all that out is because when the Obama people came, they were mostly ex-Clinton people. Um, uh, very large fraction of them had either, they'd either worked on the Clinton plan or they had been burned in the aftermath of the Clinton plan. And they resolved that this is not the way they were going to do it. So they did not go in with really a plan at all. Um, the Senate Finance Committee, which was, had a bipartisan set of hearings in the two or three years leading up to the Obama plan, and they kind of sketched out what the thing was going to look like. And the White House, I mean, I don't want to say the White House didn't play any role at all. They played a massive role. But it was a more facilitative role. It was like, we want to get to this place where as many people as possible have coverage and everyone has access to coverage. And you, Congress, you figure out how to make that happen. Now, even that would never have worked if they didn't have the 60 votes in the Senate. It just would not have worked because the Republicans had decided, even though they had been part of these conversations in the years running up to it, that like, like Gingrich, they were just going to be against it. But um, it was much easier to hold the Democrats together when you were able to take the pieces apart. So when you were able to say to, say, Joe Lieberman, who, who was an independent but voted with the Democrats, okay, we don't have to have a public option. We can have this thing without the public option. Go for it. Um, which would be very hard if you had this intricate jigsaw puzzle plan, but was much easier with the Obama administration sort of saying, you know, do whatever you like. What we really care about is get as many people covered as you possibly can. That totally makes sense. Yeah. So what, how do you see... Um, I guess the, the factors that sort of stay the same across different administrations and what changes throughout. Um, are there something inherent to the American political system or? Uh, there are, there are many, many, many things inherent to the American political system. So first of all, I think one thing about the American political system 
although it's been very much tested in the in the recent past in the in the Trump administration, but even in the Trump administration, it you know the vestiges of it hang on is that the various parts of the of the political process are very jealous of their prerogatives. Congress does not want to allow the president to do whatever the president wants. I mean, many, many members of Congress are perfectly willing to do that, but there remains, you know, sort of a small group of people who say, this is not the way we do it. It's not like, well, I don't care about the outcome, but there are, there are ways. And I would say that is true not only between Congress and the president, but also in the swamp, as the Trump administration would say, um, the various administrative offices within, you know, the various cabinet offices, they want to be their thing. They don't, they don't want to be run over by the White House. There's a lot of, it's like Princeton and Yale. They don't, Princeton doesn't, it's a great idea that it comes from Yale, you're still not interested, right? Um, so uh, it's, there is that, there is that, it's that stays. Um, there is the beginning of an administration. The beginning of an administration is, and sometimes for a long time, can be a real mess because an administration, the president comes in, the president doesn't know all the members of the cabinet. Usually they're not all people who the president has interacted with in the past. The president doesn't know the advisors, except the ones who come from a campaign, and a campaign is a completely different thing than running a business, running, a, running the actual White House. So the beginning of an administration can be a time of incredible factionalism and incredible um, insider, you know, trying to maneuver. That was why there were all the, all the leaks in the Clinton administration. What were the leaks? The leaks happened because somebody sitting at that meeting did not like the direction things were going. And instead of speaking to the president, which once an if an administration is well organized and managed, then when somebody feels that way, they get the word to the president and if they feel the president hears them or they feel that somebody higher up hears them, they're not going to go to the Washington Post. There's no reason. But if you feel like you don't have a line of communication or the person there is not listening, not that they, everyone in government recognizes that they're not going to get their way all the time. But if you don't feel like people are even hearing you out, that's when people wind up going to the press. So the Obama administration was unbelievably leak proof. Nobody talked to anybody. You don't see... I mean, I can think of things that my office worked on that were politically explosive, and they did not hit the paper until the day we released them because people felt like the lines of communication were clear. If they disagreed, somebody would hear them. It didn't mean that they would agree, but, but they didn't have to go to the Washington Post to make sure their view was heard. So in that regard, the Obama administration was very successful in, in oh, it was, rallying people together and it pushing was a, through this house. I mean, the Obama administration ran very, very effectively. They faced a lot of opposition, but from a management perspective, certainly compared to the other, certainly compared to the Clinton administration, the Bush administration, I was quite junior, and and it was the very waning days of the administration, so a little harder to know. But but compared to the Clinton administration, the Obama administration was a masterpiece of management. And also, it takes enormous discipline to only engage in the issues that really warrant your attention um, if you're at the very top of the pyramid. So one of the other problems with the Clinton administration is that they wasted an unbelievable amount of time on issues that probably did not need the attention of the president and the senior leadership team.
since we're already talking about uh, people's attitudes towards reform and the, the role the administration's played, I'm very curious to hear your thoughts as to how Americans view healthcare fundamentally, because it seems that many countries' uh, health systems, including the Europeans, were established under the fundamental principle and goal of social solidarity. I was at the... Right, you were there this yesterday. Yesterday. It was all about, you know, you have to figure right. out the question whether it's a social good or a private consumption good. And, and I was interviewing Reinhard Busse, right. um, who was the right. professor of the, from Germany. Germany. And he was just basically saying, Germany was, it was all about social solidarity. You have to care for other people. And when you choose the health care, when you, when you execute the plan, you don't just think about yourself. Well, uh, so I don't think, so first of all, I should say, um, the, the vision of health care being rooted in social solidarity is not only it's not only a Euro European vision, it's particularly a German vision. That is the language that Germans use. That doesn't mean that other people don't have it, but it is the particular language that Germans use. There's nothing wrong with it. Just It's a very um, German thing to say. It's a very <laughs> German thing to say. And, and I think it is a, a mistake to kind of come into this believing that Americans are just nastier than everyone else in the world. Um, maybe they are. Um, but, and certainly... There is ample reason, when you look at things like the Medicaid expansion, to believe that places where um, high-income people, taxpayers, voters, see the people who are going to benefit from coverage as the other, segregated places, places with a long history of discrimination, those are the ones that did not accept the Medicaid expansion. It's very difficult to, to tell a story that doesn't implicate the long history of American civil rights and attitudes and discrimination and all that stuff. It's not, though, as though England or France or Germany are without stain when we think about mistreating other people. Um, so I, I think we can get too wrapped up in this idea that Americans are just fundamentally nastier. In fact, I would almost say the opposite. One of the things about America that in some ways makes this quite difficult is that Americans are actually individually quite generous. So while social spending in the U.S. is very low, charitable spending in the U.S. is very high. And I, can I tell a story? Yes. All right. So <laughs> before I went to work for the Obama administration, um, back in the, it must have been in the early 2000s, I was for some reason at a conference in, uh, on Hilton Head Island. I think it was Hilton Head Island. One of those islands off the coast of Carolinas that was that's very very prosperous and has lots of people who are retired and play golf um, and I was giving I was like one of those you know you when you're on an academic and you're on the circuit um, sometimes you you're giving talks to industry groups you're like the juggler you're like the you know the, the dinner entertainment I was giving some dinner entertainment talk and somebody said you know I want to take you out to see this clinic we have called volunteers in medicine and they this older gentleman had been a physician and there is a, a very poor African-American population on this island as well. He had opened a clinic on this island to treat people who didn't have coverage, who didn't have good access to care. And the clinic was entirely staffed by retired nurses and doctors who had moved down there and who were doing this as volunteers. It was beautiful. The clinic was absolutely beautiful. The people, the worker, the, the staff were, they were like, you know, uh, it was like Southern hospitality, the kind that you, that you think about in a movie. They were very kind and polite and sweet and wonderful, and they really cared about the people that they were treating, and they did it all 
they got malpractice waivers and all kinds of things. They had done all this work to make this thing work, and they were doing this lovely job treating this little community. And on the way back to the hotel, I asked the doctor, innocuously, I thought, whether he was in favor of national health insurance or universal health insurance, and he was adamantly opposed. And I said, why? And he said, because look at the beautiful thing we're doing as volunteers. We don't want the government to be doing that. We, want, we feel like this is the way we should be caring for each other. Each other. And, or for poor people. I'm not sure he was saying for each other. Gotcha. Well, for he, Americans. He, for, he or... was not using this clinic. He and his friends were going to right. the hospital down the road. He, they, but, <laughs> right? And now, these people were completely kind and good. They were taking time away from their retirement to take care of people. You can't, it's impossible to fault them, I think, or to impugn their generosity. They were, they were more generous. People. They were more than yeah. good people. They, however, had this very strong feeling that this was not the role of government to do it. And a challenge in U.S. health policy is not, not only how we feel about each other, but also who we feel should, should take care of that problem. Um, and, and the consequence of it is not only that our health policy is pretty thin compared to, in terms of social solidarity in those ways, but also that all of our social welfare policy is pretty thin. So our health policy is not uniquely so. We, we are less generous than the Germans or the French or whatever on ma many dimensions, and our government is much less interventionist in many ways. You, you were there yesterday when they were talking about, when uh, uh, May was talking about uh, in Taiwan, uh, everybody's prescriptions are in a central government database. Can you, I, you're just sitting, I'm sitting there as an ex-government official, and I feel my spine tingling. Can you imagine if I said to the American people, we're gonna take all your prescription records and we're gonna put them in one massive government database so I can find out what pills you took yesterday? We would it would have a riot. not go. We would have riots it on would the not go, it would not happen. Right. So, I mean, and that's not about social solidarity. That's about how you think about government and how, you, so there's a lot more to this than just Americans are nasty people. Do you think the role of, the, of freedom and choice, the emphasis to have liberty, you know, does any of that idea play any role in I think this? that at least the rhetoric, so you can tell this story in two ways. One is that people genuinely care and feel this way, and, and that was certainly true of the people that I met, you know, at that clinic. They were, they were living it. Um, uh, and you could also tell a story that this is, these are great rhetorical devices to motivate people who don't like the idea of someone telling them what to do or having to pay higher taxes. I, you could tell this cynically or you could tell it honestly, you know, as a story of genuine, commit, genuine feeling. It almost doesn't matter. I mean, that's the, way the, that's the way the game is played. People feel freedom, liberty. Those are key American values, and you either believe, of the, believe in them as key American values or you believe them at, that they are the bulwark against somebody taking your money, and either way, um, it works. So does that mean a single-payer healthcare system, something like that, would just never work in, in the U.S.? Well, what does work mean? So first of all, what does single-payer mean? Uh, 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 having written, uh, I, I, I published something on this yesterday as it happens. <laughs> so it turns out no two healthcare systems in the world are the same. And there is no, so, no obvious thing called a single-payer system. I mean, I don't know, does Canada have a single-payer system? You were there yesterday. Each province runs their own plan. Is it a single-payer plan? Some of the plans allow private insurance. I don't know. Um, is England a single-payer plan? 10% of the population is out of the plan. What about just the, the vision that some of our presidential candidates have, on the left have proposed? I mean, Bernie has 
said recently that you know, in 2016 when he first brought this idea of um, healthcare should be a be a universal right for all, and and nobody was really listening, and then now like people are so, really really so getting first of behind all, of him. With all due respect to Bernie, um, this idea has been on the political uh, uh, has been on the table since at least 1972. And okay. there was a vocal, committed, single-payer group in 1992 when the Clinton plan went forward, because I remember coming back from Washington and being excoriated by my colleagues for not having pushed a single-payer plan back then. It's not like this dream came out of his head for in our generation. For my generation, it seems like this idea. Yeah, is no, but I mean, this is it's not a new idea. <laughs> right. Um, in fact, one of the challenges with it, I have to say, is that it is, to some extent, an idea that has been that was preserved in amber. The plan that Bernie puts forward is not different from the plan people were talking about in 1972, although almost everything else in the world is pretty different from 1972. So there are things in his plan that people who work in health policy now would say, like, we tried that, that doesn't work. Like, that's not a way to go. Um, but it's not, that's not what he's about. He's trying, he's telling a story. Um, and, and that's okay, like he doesn't have to get all the details right. He's telling a story. Uh, uh, but I will say that the thing about his story, in my own experience, that I find a little bit um, troubling in terms of moving it forward is his story is a lot more like the vision of the Clinton people, not in its design, but in its conception of itself as a thing. Like Bernie has a plan and that's the plan and how you, deviate from that, what your priorities are when you're deviating, that's not really very well played out. So the Obama people, they were just really like, we're going to get uninsured people covered. We're going to protect you from pre-existing conditions. If you would come to them and said, we're going to do it this way, or we're going to do it that way, they would have said, whatever works. Like, tell me what works and we'll get through Congress and we'll just do it. Um, the Medicare for all people, a lot of what they're about is means and not ends. A lot, I think it's a lot easier to push Congress on ends than on means. You, you say to them, like, this is where we want to go. You guys, you, you take all your conceptions, what you want in your area, whatever it is, and get us there. You do your horse trading to get us to where we want to go. Uh, but if you say, this is how you have to do it, like, don't worry about where we're getting. This is how you have to do it. I think that's actually harder to get through Congress. Is there any presidential candidates plan that you think might work like or in other words we're not words, there yet like they don't have plans yet they don't have plans yet what about the future of obamacare how do you envision things play out so um in a different world in in you know the 14,000th dimension different world um when the u.s when the u.s passed health policy we would revisit it every four or five years and fix it because as you heard yesterday as well um, there's this idea out there, totally wrong, that you pass a healthcare plan and, and you you're done, you go home, it's over, right? I mean, I, that was why I asked the question. I think that is the conception. You guys all think we're going to do healthcare and then Congress can focus on the other things that we really care about. Um, but exactly. that is wrong, right? Healthcare does not, you, you heard them say it. I mean, don't, don't take it from me. Every one of them said, we do this. Reinhard Booth said, no, was it, it was the Swiss guy said, you know, we can only do a reform every five to seven years. I wish we could do it more often. If you told American congressmen that they would have to do a significant healthcare reform every five to seven years, like they just all walk off the job. 
Um, so does, does it mean that America's current political structure is just not very effective in addressing the actual needs of the people, especially when it comes to an issue as complex as healthcare? Well, our political structure was set up somewhat more like the Canadians than, than like the Europeans, Europeans or not, you know, Germany is also federalist, but there's not that much power in the German states. Canada is extremely federalist. You heard him say that as well yesterday. They're very federalist. So pretty much all of the power is in the provinces. Um, one of the challenges in the U.S. is how to balance having, we, we, we don't normally do all sorts, do very complicated things. That's not true. We do some very complicated things through <laughs> the federal government. But we do have this sort of, Push there is forward. a question of what, how much the federal government can do in this space and how micro the federal government can get and keep and how quickly you can adapt. So health policies, so health policy is a lot harder to do than say incomes policy or food policy or housing policy. Like, there are lots of things that are social solidarity goods, right, that are food policy. We have a food stamps program. That actually, we did it in the 60s or something. We did it well before that. We revamped it. And it's more or less, we, we kind of leave it alone for a very, very long time. We don't touch it very often. And there's, a, there's battles over how much money goes into it, and that's it, not the structure. Why? Well, because people need the same number of calories to survive today as they did in the 1960s. And so the basic structure of what you're trying to give people hasn't changed. If we offered a program for low-income people in the U.S. that gave them the health care that was available in the 1960s, that would be pretty inhumane. So healthcare changes every year, every two years, and the system has to adapt to that somehow. You, you I guess, so you mentioned how Bernie is telling a story. Yeah. And how politics are certainly shaping the way policy is actually how policy is actually rolled out. I'm very curious to hear your thoughts on how you think we can maintain a good balance between storytelling, the day-to-day -day politics, and actual long-lasting policy making. That's a great question. Um, it's a very a, broad it's general a very, question. I mean, let me think about it for a second. I mean, I, I think, first of all, um, you need nerds and you need storytellers. And, they're rarely the same people, even if they're the same person on the top, although even so that rarely. Um, you need to work out the details. You need to think that through. You need to get the Congressional Budget Office and other places to be able to provide estimates. You need to build consensus in a, almost in an academic sense about what will happen if you do A, B, or C. So in the Obama administration effort, one of the things that made it possible to do that is that during the, from the moment the Clinton Clinton effort failed until the Obama effort started. There was about 12 years, 10 years of very well-funded by different foundations, different organizations, whatever, research on how the health system works, how different things would happen. The people you hear talking, especially today, they had been doing research through that whole period. If we expand this, if we do that, this will happen, this will happen, whatever. And having all of that information meant that you could start to build something that actually worked almost exactly as people expected it to. So the Congressional Budget Office forecast how many people would be covered, how much things would cost. They did an unbelievably good job doing that. 
And the reason was they were building it on this enormous base of research that academics had done and the nerds. Takes, the nerds, <laughs> right? The nerds had done their work. Um, and I don't think it was not all liberal nerds. There were conservative nerds. There were all sorts of nerds doing their work, trying to figure out how do we move forward. Um, so you need that. Um, and then, but the nerdy work, like I cannot explain to you the Obama health plan. It, it would take four podcasts. It takes forever. Um, uh, so you need somebody who's going to tell a story about what will this do for the American people? Because they don't want to know what the parameter estimates are. They want to know what's going to happen to me. Um, and then if you're Bernie, or even if you're not Bernie, even if you're Obama or Clinton, you have to tell a story about how that health plan thing that you're building fits into the broader conception of us as a people. That's the social solidarity language. It has to fit in what Americans really What they value, believe, what they believe, right. what they feel, right? You have to have all of that going. And then you need the partisan politics and you need people to be able to say, well, this much but not that, this thing and not that thing. Um, That's with, an impossible task, right? Well, so what is, you know, Has I think it is. anybody ever? Well, so, so one <laughs> thing I, I mean, maybe this is just self-serving, but the Obama plan did an enormous amount of good. I mean, we almost, we, there are so many, you know, we keep picking on the flaws, and they're definitely flaws. But um, the uninsurance rate in Massachusetts at this moment, which is probably the most comp complete version of the Obama plan, is under 4%. And if you took out people who were non-citizens, which includes, so there's no way in the data to separate documented and undocumented, so let's just look at citizens, it's like 2.5%. All right, that's a, that, if we could get the whole country to have a 2.5% uninsurance rate, be incredible. That would be pretty astonishing. And now, you know, Connecticut is close to that. Uh, New York is getting close to that. Um, so if you take all the tools that are in the Obama plan and you make them really work, you can get quite a long way. And even if you don't, we've got the uninsured rate down a lot. And we have gotten the pre-existing condition thing more or less okay. Um, so, um, you know, you, you were not in boarding school yet when Obama was elected? Um, no, I wasn't. Right? Was a while ago. So it yeah. seems like it was 100 years ago and that this is the way it has always been. I will tell you, uh, too bad Uwe, I mean, it, I would have liked to get Uwe on tape saying this, but if you had asked people in 2008, right, at the election, the day of the election, will the U.S. get a system that will get health insurance coverage, uninsured rates below 10% for the country, below, you know, will you get the things that we got? I, I, I'm going to guess... 85% at least of the people you said you asked would say no, no chance. And we did. And we did. So like, you know, miracles can happen. Um, uh, you, the stars can align. You need 60 votes in the Senate, unless they change the filibuster rules, which the, like, why doesn't the Senate change the filibuster rules? Because it's the Senate. Um, uh, whether it's good or not, I don't know. I'm not, that's, that's not my, my specialty, but it's interesting that they don't, right? They could, they just don't. Um, so you need an enormous amount of political will. And remember, even if you have 60 Democrats in the Senate, one of them is Manchin, and, and one of them is John Tester. And you know, so there are a fair number of fairly conservative Democratic senators who are not necessarily going to go for something very radical. What about um, US health care costs? Because I think 
we'll always talk about the relationship between higher prices and higher costs. Uh, why is high cost so persistent in a place like U.S.? I mean, people always say, there's always this opinion that says it's inevitable to have higher costs because we have to pay the well-trained researchers and doctors. But they have those in other countries. Yeah, but U.S. is leading the innovations. We're always I, the ones I that first know. invent the so drugs. I, I don't actually, I've been having this, I, I don't know the answer. I've been having this debate <laughs> with one of my colleagues about whether per capita the U.S. is actually more innovative. And I don't know the answer. It's actually not, the answer is not, does not jump out at you if you like count Nobel laureates or patents or anything. What about healthcare innovations, like pharmaceutical companies? That are there are lots of European pharmaceutical companies that do lots of stuff. There's a lot of venture capital in the U.S. It goes wherever there's talent. There's no reason to believe that it stays in the U.S. It goes wherever there's talent. So, and those are not the people who are making the money in the healthcare system. Like, so separate out, separate out the drug companies and the whole drug regulation piece of this and the rest of the system. Because when people talk about the prices, they're not just talking about pharmaceuticals. They're talking about prices through the system. Um, and why? And what, why are we so expensive? Yeah. So I, I'm actually, this is a really tough question. It's, it's a tough, so you, are you gonna go to the panels today? Yes, I will. All right, so one of the things that's really cool here and just uh, like a shout out to data and, and everything is that when Uwe Reinhardt first wrote his paper called It's the Price is Stupid, which was probably in around 2002, three, whatever, the way he did it is with good estimates of, of national spending from the OECD, they collect national health expenditures for all countries, and we have good measures of hospital visits and hospital days and physician days, and you could just divide one by the other and call that prices. The U.S. is not a heavy user of the healthcare system. Americans do not go to the doctor a lot. They don't spend a lot of days in the hospital. And they do spend a lot of total money. So by construction, you see that prices are very high, right? But we didn't have a lot of actual data on prices. Like, we were just inferring it by that division exercise. Interesting. So we okay. don't actually know. Wait, wait, wait. That was then. Okay. Over time, a lot more research has gone into actually calculating where are the prices. And, and some of that research didn't actually happen until after, till about 2010. So before 2010, in the US, if you talked about variations in healthcare spending across the country, you were mostly talking about variations in Medicare spending. And you were mostly talking about, because Medicare sets prices that are uniform across the country with variation, you know, variations that we understand, you were pretty much talking about variations in utilization in the Medicare population. There was this, there's a brilliant man, Atul Gawande, now at the, the new tech thing that's gonna solve everything. Um, and, and he wrote this paper in the New Yorker, and you might have read it for one of your classes, comparing El Paso, Texas, and, oh my goodness, I'm blanking on which the other city is, another city in Texas. And one of them has like three top, three times higher healthcare spending than the other, whatever. Why, why is it? And it's all about doctors who are using too much of this or too much of that. And it was all on the utilization side. And that's what everybody knew. And that's what everybody focused on. And there was actually an effort to try and reduce variations in the Medicare system. Why is it that somebody in Minnesota spends so much less money than somebody in Florida? And then in about 2010, somebody began to look at what is going on in the private healthcare sector. 
Um, and what they discovered is that in the private healthcare sector, the variations are completely different. They don't look at all like the Medicare variations, and they're mostly driven by prices. And prices vary not, forget about the difference in prices between the US and Canada, prices vary in the US in ridiculous ways. Like, you know, prices for some things in the private sector are 300% of Medicare, and in some places, much less. And, you know, so the whole conversation about prices really didn't start until about 10 years ago. So you're a policymaker, a researcher, and a mentor, among many other things. What are the, some of the goals that you set for yourself in these spaces, and, and what do you consider is success for, for a research piece or for a vision that you lay out? Because as you oh said, my. it's so uh, hard to get it is really all the pieces right, right. Oh, yeah. Um, so one thing, so one thing is um, let, those are all different roles, and your success is not the same in all those roles. And, and you know, you sh it's pretty obvious. Like, the person who swims fastest does not win the running race. Um, uh, so when you are in a policymaking position, you have to be a policymaker. When you are in a research position, you have a different set of goals. And, and I think people forget that sometimes. Um, so as a policymaker, I think, although I think there are certainly some, you know, there's some things in my own head that try tie them all together. But... As a policymaker, one thing is you are part of a team that is trying to advance a broad goal. And you have to um, reconcile yourself with the idea that in the effort to achieve that broad goal that you agree with, some decisions will be made that you don't necessarily agree with. You have to subsume your ego because nobody wants to hear about what you think. You are nobody. In fact, it's it's... I, I say to people, the worst day in your life as, a, as an assistant secretary is the day your name is in the Washington Post or the New York Times. Like, that's the worst. That, there is nothing. Because if you did something good, the, the credit is supposed to go to the president or to the secretary, certainly not to you, lowly assistant secretary in the department. Um, and if you did something bad, like, that's just bad. So, and you're going to be castigated and called up on Capitol Hill, and it's going to be horrible. So you just, you know, you wake up in the morning, and you just pray fervently that nothing you did will ever hit the Times. When you're a researcher, you know, it's a great day when one of the columns picks up your paper. Um, and you're happy. Because when you're a researcher, you have an idea, and your goal is to get that idea out in the world. Not to make a policy happen, not to, right? You have an idea, and you're trying to push the frontiers of knowledge forward and help people think about problems in new ways. And that's super important, but it's a different task. It's fun. You were just mentioning how you have to reconcile with other people. You have to subsume your ego in this whole process of policymaking and doing politics. But what's one contrarian view that you have on the the healthcare system or American society in general that many other people might not agree with you about, but but you feel quite strongly about. Oh my, um, a contrarian view. So I don't know that any of my views are horribly contrarian. I, 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 I have been a prices person for a long long time. So um, that was a view that was that was contrary, but everyone has come around to agree with me, which is always such a nice thing. Um, uh, but, you know, one, one, I guess one is that I think that um, the barriers to entry into healthcare, you know, are you an econ major? Yes, I okay. am. Okay, so the first big economics writing on healthcare was by Milton Friedman. And he wrote a paper 
a book back in like 1945 or 1947 about entry into the professions in which he said, look, the big problem in the healthcare system, this is well before Medicare and all of that good stuff, it, and he didn't really care about health insurance, it was just starting, he wasn't even thinking about that, is we don't let, we have really strong barriers, into, barriers to entry into the profession. You have, it's really hard to become a doctor. And over time, the importance of that dimension of the healthcare system has more or less been lost. We don't pay much attention to it anymore because we're so excited about insurance and demand side control and whatever. But I actually think that um, some of the challenges of the U.S. healthcare system come because it's really hard. Uh, it's not very nimble, and in some of the highest paid things, we actually have highest paid parts of it. We don't let people in, um, and so that's why why they're really highly paid. I mean, it's not because they are fantastic or anything. It's because we only let you know 25 people become dermatologists. It's not that dermatology is so much better than anything else in the world. If we let anybody who wanted to and could pass the exams become a dermatologist, the earnings of dermatologists would fall. So a lot of people are saying that we have to lower the cost of medical school, we have to make... We could lower the cost of Princeton, too. Um, or, or, or make medical school application easier. You know, there, are still, there were already like five applications, I don't remember the number. It's the number of application, qualified applications per slot in Medicare, medical school. I didn't look at last year's numbers, but it's overwhelmingly high. I mean, it's just, you will have friends, smart friends graduating from Princeton who will not get into medical school. Right, but why not just let them get in, right? Wouldn't that be Because that would that? lower the earnings of existing doctors. <laughs> <laughs> I hate to be cynical, but... Um, <laughs> but wouldn't that help fix the healthcare system? But quite possibly. You don't think that's, a, that's an inevitable outcome? If oh, I am sure that is not an inevitable, inevitable outcome. There are other ways of doing it, and that one seems to be a particularly tough one. I mean, it's hard to do. You have to build the medical schools. You have to let the people in. Um, but I think it's something we do not pay enough attention to, that, it's, that, that when we think about a, let me put it this way, when we talk about free market medicine or that we need to have a competitive healthcare system or that what we need to do is less government and more market, no one ever talks about the fact that it's really, we have actually made it almost impossible for people to enter this profession. If you think about, if you think about competitive markets generally, we think of entry and exit as being the thing that makes competitive markets work, and there is no entry into these professions. So why are we um, sort of val valorizing the idea of competitive markets in healthcare when there, we don't have competitive markets in healthcare, thank you very much. Doesn't mean government price setting is the right thing to do or whatever, we can go lots of other places, but there is no sense in valorizing and arguing that right now we have a free market system and we're gonna move away from a free market system to a socialized system, when in fact we don't have a free market system. Do you foresee the American public being more receptive to all these ideas, these new ideas of moving <laughs> to the more socialized I think, I, I suspect, as in most countries, that the American public would be quite comfortable with price regulation of healthcare providers. But we won't be immediately open to, I hate That's to not socialized, med I mean, that's a long way from socialization exactly. in the sense that there are no tax implications of that. If I just said doctors who are not as I'm not saying this, podcast, podcast listeners, I'm not advocating <laughs> this. I'm just making a, uh, a generalized statement hypothesis. here about how politics works. If you said to people, 
we're not going to let doctors make so much money anymore because, you know, there are doctors who are making $800,000 a year, and we're not going to let them make $800,000 a year practicing medicine. They're going to have to, we're going to pay them less per thing. I don't think that there would be riots in the streets about that. Now, what would happen is that the medical profession would say, if you do that, you know, quality will decline and we'll not have any doctors and terrible things will happen and, you know, gaping holes will open on the streets and cars will be swallowed by them. But, and then people might get upset, right? But the, the, if you said to people, let me just, here's, a, here's one for you. If I said to the American public, we are not going to allow private universities to charge more than $10,000 a year in tuition. I'm sure 85% of the population would say that's a great idea. Great idea. Maybe more than 85% of the population. They probably would say it if I said it about, you know, <coughs> bottles of water. That's a very politically attractive idea. I'm not saying it's a good idea. I'm a dean. I don't think that's a good idea. Um, but, you know, that, so you could go that way. I suspect that's where more of the action will be. Gotcha. It's not redistributive. In, it's redistributive away from doctors, but yeah. But, but you, don't, you, you don't foresee any radical changes, radical thinking, drastically changing the way we think about the uh, healthcare system coming up anytime well, you know, soon. Do I, um, something like, so the uninsured rate in the US is somewhere around 10%. So 10% of people at any moment in time, many of them will become insured later anyway, but at any moment in time, about 10% of the population, they could do a lot better if we change systems. The rest of the population has something already. People who have something, have you taken behavioral economics? No. Okay, so you're gonna take a class at some point where somebody's gonna give you a cup, and they're gonna ask you, first they're gonna ask you, like, how much would you pay for this cup? And you're gonna say a dollar. And then they're going to give you the cup, and then they're going to ask you, how much will you, do we have to pay you to take it away? And you're going to say $2. And that's the, that's the reason that it's going to be really hard to get to single payer. Totally makes sense. Interesting. Um, as tech innovations advance, uh, how do you foresee the healthcare industry or health system shaping up? I mean, we're talking about very futuristic things like, Biologi biologically and genetically engineered humans. We, we have inorganic life. We can just cure diseases through things. People can know what you're thinking. Just crazy stuff. Crazy stuff is going to happen. So, you know, let's, let's, let's dial it back a little bit because I think <laughs> like completely crazy stuff, I don't have enough of an imagination to figure out. I think there are a couple of ways to think about it. One is, um, on the positive side, some of this will actually inject some competition into the healthcare sector um, if we let it. So if we have really good computers that can do all kinds of things and they can op operate robots, maybe we won't need people to do some of the things that we can only use extremely highly trained, gifted, superhuman people to do right now. Um, and that actually could reduce prices in a competitive system. Um, that would be kind of cool. Uh, uh, so, so I'm just saying, like, this could go in many different directions. Um, another concern is that we will know more about people, and that will make it harder to operate insurance markets. It'll be harder to maintain a risk pool the more we know about people. Um, another concern is that people will live longer, and that may mean that we need to develop 
ways of covering their costs for a longer period of time, especially if they're not working for part of that time. Um, I think what it mostly means is that we actually need to be even more nimble in the way we think about this system than we used to be. And we have to be even more conscious and thoughtful about the inequities that will inevitably arise because I think the evidence suggests that the more stuff that, that highly educated, high IQ people are, are better able to deal with very rapidly changing technology, they're, very, they're more able to grasp what it does, to take advantage of it, to absorb it, than less educated people or people who just don't have that particular capacity. They could be good at other things. And so you're gonna wind up with a lot more inequity if it takes a super genius to be able to make the best use of the technology. And we'll have to see whether the technology is a technology that is that works for everyone or it's one that really is what they call skill biased. We've seen a lot of skill biased technology. We do a lot of things in this country. One of the one of the things about the way that we run our healthcare system is it's highly skill biased. If you can navigate it, if you can figure out what the optimal thing to do is, you can you can game this system from any level. And if you can't, I am quite convinced you get much worse, you're gonna get much worse outcomes treatment. Do you think tech will be the our last resort in the sense that there's so much political polarization, partisanship, and it's just, we need a disruptor that comes in and change the game is, completely. I mean, tech is not one thing. And we've had a lot of tech disruptions in the world over time. And some of them have worked in ways that have been um, enabling and, and equity increasing. And some of them have worked in ways that are disenabling and equity decreasing. We don't, I don't think, um, I don't think tech, the word tech doesn't tell us what's going to happen. Um, the, the, you know, the Industrial Revolution, the invention of the telephone, the invention of the automobile, uh, lots of stuff happens and, and it has different kinds of effects. The name of our show is Policy Punchline, so I really have to ask you at the oh, no, end. Punchline now. What is the punchline here for healthcare policy? I think the punchline is we can make things better. We have made things better. There is opportunity on the policy side in healthcare to do good things. We, we shouldn't be dismissive of incrementalism. This is a very incrementalist country. You move people in small steps is not a bad thing as long as you're moving in a good direction. Uh, much better to move in small steps in a good direction than to move, big steps. Than, than to move in big steps backwards um, or to try and move in big steps and just paralyze the system. But you are an optimist in, in the sense that we are moving towards the right direction. Look, you know, um, uninsurance rates are at the lowest point. They've, they've been essentially in recorded history in the United States. That's pretty impressive, right? That's not bad. If, you have, if you're born with an, a health condition, can I end with a story? Yes, please. All right, all yes. right. Wonderful so when story. I went to Washington, um, my daughter was 12 or so. She had a good friend, her, her very close friend, whose parents were both artists, uh, musicians, that kind of thing. This, and I had a conversation with her father, the girl's father. And he said to me, you know, you got to do something because my daughter was diagnosed with type 1 diabetes when she was 10 years old. And I had the following conversation with her. I said, I'm not gonna give the girl's name, girl. Um, 
I know you're an incredibly talented guitarist. She is a fabulous guitarist musician. But you can't be a musician. You have to go and take, join a profession where you can work for a big company because you're going to need health insurance for the rest of your life. And I know how difficult it has been for us to be able to keep coverage for you as you've grown up as, as musicians. You can't do that. And I thought to myself, this is the United States of America. You're telling a 12-year-old girl that she has to damn, give up, give her, up her own well-reasonable ambition because she's not going to be able to get health insurance? That's absolutely abominable. We solved that problem. And that's why you're an optimist. So I'm an optimist. Awesome. That's a wonderful note to end this episode. Thank you so much for joining us. Okay. Today, <laughs> All right. You're very welcome. Awesome. And this concludes this episode of Policy Punchline. Uh, that was our conversation with Professor Sherry Gleach. She is uh, currently the dean of New York University's Robert F. Wagner Graduate School of Public Service, and she was the Assistant Secretary for Planning and Evaluation at the Department of Health and Human Services under President Obama. Uh, we had a wonderful conversation about health and health policy, the Affordable Care Act, and how we really should think about healthcare at a more fundamental level. That was such a wonderful conversation. Uh, so, and please follow us on policypunchline.com, on iTunes, Spotify, SoundCloud, Stitcher. Rate and review us. Uh, leave us some comments and. Uh, we look forward to bringing you more episodes and discussions on healthcare and a wide range of other topics. Thank you so much for listening today. You've been listening to Policy Punchline, a podcast generously supported by the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance at Princeton University. We would also like to encourage you to follow other podcasts produced by Princeton University, such as Politics and Polls by the Woodrow Wilson School of Public and International Affairs. Policy Punchline is intended to be informational only and does not reflect nor represent the views of Princeton University or the Julius Rabinowitz Center for Public Policy and Finance. For more information on subscription, donation, volunteering, or contact, please visit policypunchline.com. Thank you again for listening.